Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though, in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time to fess up. <laughs> it's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
everybody, and welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 93. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No, I am telling you, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. That's right. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, this is our part two on the Atlanta child murders. Between 1979 and 1981, children and teenagers were disappearing off the streets of Atlanta, later turning up dead, which was terrifying the entire city. Mm. At least 28 people in the Atlanta area, most of them young black boys and teenagers, were kidnapped and murdered. And if you haven't listened to part one, go on back and listen to that, and we'll meet you right back here. That's right. So before we get into it, how you doing? Well, it's been a, a rough week, and uh, I'll say I'm scared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and I'm I'm worried for our country. Whew, me too. Uh, not doing good. Uh, yeah. I just when 2020 couldn't possibly get any worse, it just did, yeah. and uh, we lost uh, the notorious RBG, a true giant. So I'm doing yeah. my best to. Find things that make me laugh and smile. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, uh, well, now we're going to get into some listener letters. Mm -hmm. Sure, angels. Just crap out on us. Just (laughs) great. We we could really use some angels in 2020. Come on now. (laughs) Come on. Whoa, angels, what is happening? Oh my God, I'm so <laughs> defeated. At least that works. Oh my God, I can't believe this. Okay. Hello, angels. Hello, thank angels. You. Yeah, thank you. What's in the bag, Beth? We got a lovely iTunes review from You Teach titled Breath of Fresh Air. Mm. And sh- and they said, this podcast is a breath of fresh air. Hey. I love this podcast by two women of color. And uh, uh, that's actually uh, one woman of color and one white lady. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> but so, we appreciate uh, Yeah, I really appreciate that. (laughs) I'm a faker. (laughs) (laughs) You're the the next Rachel Dolezal. (laughs) And her her friend, uh, Miss Krug, the white lady who was pretending to be all kinds of black women. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> just kidding no you're not this podcast does a great job of serial killers not widely known because the news is racist mm. i love the relationship between the two hosts clearly sister friends Amen. and we are mm-hmm. yeah keep up the great work hip-hop air horns hey here you go yeah hip-hop air horns to you you teach wow what is that <laughs> i just want i just want to I just want to like crawl in a hole 
there we go. That's there we a good go. one. Okay, so yeah. they're working again. Hip hop air horns to use this. Sorry if yeah. that was obnoxiously loud. Here, let me do it one more time. Oh, that's okay. better. Much better. Oh, yeah. God. I really was about to retire. Hang up my headphones forever. Okay. <laughs> also, we asked in our last episode for listeners to get at us if they'd been to Stone Mountain, and our fabulous fruities heeded our call. Right. We got an IG message from Bree saying, hey, just listened to the podcast about the Atlanta child murders, and I have been to Stone Mountain. It was really fun until after when I learned about its racist-ass history, and then I was disgusted. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> <laughs> she added that knowing what she knows now, she wouldn't go back. Mm, amen. So. Knowledge is power. Yeah. Hip hop air horns, Brie. Yes. Thank you, Brie. And we got a whole bunch of new patrons and, and Patreons this week. Uh, Amanda R., Amanda P., Captain S., C.O. Bun C., at, uh, Yoranda, and Pamela Dr- G. Sorry, nice. Pamela G. So here goes. Uh, <clears throat> so fresh and so clean, clean. Ain't nobody dope as me. I'm just Amanda P. No, you think I'm so sexy. I'm just C. Obansi. And we are the coolest Captain S's on the planet, mama. <laughs> the sky is falling. Ain't no need to panic. Ooh, ooh. That's it. Uh, next, <laughs> next. This one is ATL inspired. And I hope I don't fuck it up. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, Shake it like a Polaroid picture. Hey, yeah, shake it, shake it, shake it. Okay, now will you, Rhonda and Pamela G, Amanda R, get on the floor? You know what to do. You know what to do. You know what to hey, yeah. Oh, oh. So thank you all <laughs> for that outcast, those outcast inspired AKAs. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hope you like it. Nothing I could do about it. Uh, <laughs> also, now we're going to take a quick break and get back into the story when we come back. Hello, and welcome to Boozed Podcast, where we get supernatural and shit faced. I'm your host, Camille Monet, and I invite you to join me and my guest every other Thursday for Spirited Stories. We look at each other and we go, did that just happen? And then her hand, she saw the sucker, it fell over, and then it stood back up, and then the gate closed. Lush lore. And as it turns out, Maria, in a former life, was an evil witch. Oh. (laughs) And intoxicating inquiries. I mean, I know some hogs can be really freaking big. They can. They can be huge. They're and huge. They'll eat you. So, I mean, wait, I'm sorry, what? Pigs will eat you. Pour a drink, warm up the Ouija board, and prepare to get three ghost sheets to the wind. You can summon a new episode every other Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, get boozed. And we're back. So, Beth, remind me who we're talking about. Well, during a 22-month period from July 1979 to May 1981, at least 28 people in the Atlanta area, all of them black and poor, most of them young boys and teenagers, were kidnapped and murdered. Wayne Williams is still the prime suspect in the Atlanta child murders, although he was only convicted of killing two adults. This case is complicated, and we've done our best to give the case justice. We encourage you to check out our show notes. 
There's lots of them. There is a ton. (laughs) A ton. (laughs) There's like, I don't know how many pages. More than ever before. More than ever before. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Check those out for additional information about the case. And we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or at Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at Fruit Loops Pod at Mm gmail.com. So let's get back into it. Hit it, Beth. So we left off after the 17th victim, 16-year-old Patrick Rogers, known by friends and family as Patman, was found on December 7th, 1980, on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. He was the second victim to be found near a body of water after the media leaked information that authorities had been finding fiber and hair evidence on the victims. Uh, so whoever is doing this is watching the news. Atlanta yep. residents were terrified. A curfew was in place. The FBI had become involved and Atlanta was getting national attention, but not the kind they wanted. No. The pace of the murders quickened in 1981, and by this time, Atlanta's economy was being affected by the string of murders. So now we are going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Take us away, Beth. At the beginning of the new year, 14-year-old Luby Jeter disappeared, having last been seen January 3rd, 1981, outside of a shopping center selling car deodorizers. He had both of his parents in his life. He was a normal, fun-loving, good kid. And this was the first child case with the FBI involved. He was last seen by his friends talking to a light-skinned black man. So I wanted to bring this up. Uh, Welcome to Culture Corner. The description of a light-skinned Black man um, brings up an interesting issue in BIPOC communities called colorism. In this case, several of the witnesses described seeing a light-skinned Black man with a scar on his face. Um, And I did not consider Wayne Williams to be light-skinned. And I don't know if they were actually talking about Wayne Williams, but... uh, That aside, colorism is the idea that the closer an individual's skin, shade, or features resemble that of the colonizer, they have more value as an individual. And it comes with certain privileges that include social and economic. So like my offspring are very light-skinned. One of them is white passing. um, And that might benefit them um as they move about in the world but it's not there it's it's totally out of your control right any any privilege that you might have like i'm an able-bodied person um and i don't have to feel necessarily bad about the fact that i am an able-bodied person i just have to not be an asshole about it you know (laughs) that's all yeah Uh, good point yeah so (laughs) anyway i'm done now (laughs) in january of 1981 fbi profiler john douglas formulated a profile of the killer he advised police to use the profile he developed only as a guide in evaluating suspects as they emerged in the investigation the fbi profile that douglas came up with said that the offender would closely follow the media that he was a quote-unquote ambulance chaser chaser with an unusual interest in police activity got a little tongue-tied talking about john douglas i see you (laughs) blushing over there (laughs) uh so he would be familiar with the crime scene areas because of because he is or has resided in the area his favorite colors are black dark blue and brown and this can be observed particularly in the clothing he wears and the color of the car he drives Man, John Douglas is good. He's single and has always had difficulty relating to members of the opposite sex. He would be in his mid-20s of higher intelligence, an only child, and black. 
However, the Atlanta PD thought the killer was more likely to be someone white, because up until that time, a lot of people did not believe that black people could be serial killers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually uh, racist. (laughs) It is. And a lot of it has to do with um, people thinking that black people are not not intelligent enough. enough. Yes. Yeah. A lot of black people also thought that it was not a serial killer, but the work of the KKK and that no black man would do this to his own people. The FBI believed a white person couldn't move about a black community and go unnoticed. But there are actually lots of reasons why a white person would be in a black area if they were the police, the insurance man, a worker like a plumber or store worker. or Let's be real. Somebody coming to the neighborhood to buy drugs or have a good time and party. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. But uh, the FBI did go into have white people go into the neighborhoods and uh, they they were noticed. So (laughs) they they did like a dry run to see see what would happen if a white person just like walked into the neighborhood and and they were confronted. Yeah, yeah, they stuck out like a sore thumb. But Mm -hmm. I think probably if a white person was like dressed like a plumber or or a police officer or something like that, they probably could go unnoticed. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. On January 8th, 1981, an anonymous man called to tell the police that he was the killer and that they would find a boy's body off of Sigmund Road in Rockdale County. To investigators, he sounded white. John Douglas did not believe that he was the killer, but that they still needed to get this guy because otherwise he was going to continue to cause problems with the case. Yeah. Or maybe it was somebody putting on their white voice. I mean, that's something that uh, or code switch, right? As a BIPOC people, we have to do in settings Mm -hmm. where it's necessary for our survival. Have you ever seen that movie? Um, Sorry to Bother You with Lakeith Stanfield and um, Donald Glover or Danny Glover. And he's like, come on, put on your white voice. Uh, and <laughs> he puts on his white voice and then his sales go through the roof. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you just got to do it. Um, yeah. Anyway, in order to flush him out, Douglas suggested that the police search the wrong side of the street and make a big show of it. The man called back and let them know that they were searching the wrong side of the street. The call was traced and they caught him. The story was reported in the Atlanta press. Terry Pugh, age 15, disappeared on January 22nd, 1981. Pugh lived in a housing project with both of his parents. He had four sisters and six brothers. He liked to shoot hoops with his friends, and the day he disappeared, he had asked a friend to play basketball with him, but the friend declined because it was raining. Terry's body was found the next day off Sigmund Road in Rockdale County. He had been strangled to death. This was another indication that the killer was following the news because the body was found off of Sigmund Road where the anonymous caller had directed police. It also indicated that the killer was probably fucking with the police. Yeah. Um, And that's interesting. Um, I don't know when the Zodiac killer was, but he was sending all those letters to the like police. Playing with them. Yeah. And somebody read the Zodiac killer's words on a podcast recently. I was like, this guy sounds like a fucking idiot. Like, (laughs) like a child. Um, yes. And that's that's fucking with the police just seems childlike. We, Very we try, childish. We give yeah. serial killers are given so much credit in our in like the zeitgeist for being like these brilliant, brazen people. But they're um, not. They're not. Obviously <laughs> not emotionally very intelligent. <laughs> yes. Yes. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Look at OG true crime. Sorry. 
<laughs> Abrasions were on Terry's elbow and bruises were on his head, indicating that he did not go without a fight. Dog hairs and fibers were found on Terry's body, as had been found on some of the other bodies. Although dog hairs can be looked at microscopically for comparisons, they don't have enough individual microscopic characteristics to associate a questioned hair to a particular dog to the exclusion of all other dogs of a similar breed. Mm. And in 2015, the FBI came under fire because testifying agents had routinely overstated the value of hair evidence. Thank you. Um, <laughs> criticism deserved. Uh, yeah. In addition to dog hairs found on many of the bodies, Larry Peterson, a microanalyst for the Georgia State Crime Lab, had also found green nylon ki- carpet fibers and violet acetate fibers on some of the bodies, as well as other fibers. The green carpet fiber was considered very unusual because of its shape. Described as trilobal because a cross-section of the fiber showed three lobes, the shape of the lobes in this particular fiber was unusual and different from other fibers that the microanalysts had seen. Investigators made inquiries at many different fiber companies and could not track down the manufacturer. They spent countless hours trying to find its origin, even consulting with some chemists attending a meeting at the research facilities of a large fiber producer. The chemist concurred that the fiber was very unusual in cross-sectional shape and was consistent with being a carpet fiber. But again, the manufacturer of the fiber could not be determined. Luby Jeter's body was found in a wooded area on February 5th, 1981. He was missing all of his clothes except his underwear, and the body had been mutilated by animals. His cause of death was asphyxiation by manual, manual strangulation. Pew and Jeter knew each other. In fact, a lot of the kids moved in the same circles and knew each other. Yeah, and I mean it makes sense. Um yeah. they right, they were all they Lived were in the, in the same, same neighborhood. neighborhood, right? Yeah. The same neighborhood as Wayne Williams, which we mentioned yep. in the other episode. An investigation into the Sanders brothers, uh Charles, Don, and Jerry, who were notorious KKK members, was started after a source told police that Charles Sanders had said the KKK was creating an uprising among the blacks, that they were killing the children, that they are going to do one each month until things blow up, and that Sanders had threatened to strangle Luby Jeter because Jeter had run into Sanders' truck with the go-kart. Charles' phone was tapped and his house staked out. Charles was recorded saying that he had wiped out generations of N-words. There were other recordings of the Sanders brothers saying that they would go out and look for other black children to kill. The brothers later said that they were just joking around. Funny guys. What in what comedy world uh, (laughs) does that get crowds slapping their knees Mm. i just don't understand the kkk i guess if they had a comedy show coming to the stage welcome to open (laughs) mic night come to the stage it's charles sanders he's gonna get you guys rolling Uh, have you heard his bit about killing n-words uh god yeah uh, not no, funny. Uh, not the San- funny. <laughs> the Sanders brothers were brought in for questioning. Charles denied any involvement in the murders. He said he was allowed to hate who he wants to hate, and he was just trying to protect their way of laugh. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, they gave Charles a polygraph test, which he passed, and he was then released, and that part of the investigation was not pursued further. Patrick Baltazar, 11, was one of 14 children. He lived with his mother in Louisiana, but came to stay in Atlanta with his father. 
On February 6, 1981, Patrick and his friend were playing video games at the Omni downtown. A heavyset white man asked the boys if they wanted a ride. Patrick actually called the task force to tell them about this incident and describe the man and the car. The police took their name and Patrick's friend left after he got tired of waiting around for the police to show up. The police later said, that's kind of a joke in <laughs> black communities. Like if we call the police, they won't come right away. Um, uh-huh. But if you call it a white neighborhood, they'll be they'll be right they'll there. Be right there. <laughs> uh, the police later said that uh, they thought it was a prank call. Patrick didn't come home at night, and that was the last time Patrick was seen. His body was found one week later, February 13th, behind a vacant building, and he was the 17th child murdered in 20 months. On March 6, 1981, the body of Curtis Walker, age 13, was found partially submerged and caught on a log near the bank of the South River. He had last been seen on February 19th at a store where he had applied for a job. Curtis had been suffocated. Joseph Bell was known as Jojo to his family and no relation to Yusuf Bell, by the way, lived with his grandmother because his mom was in jail for killing his father. Uh, Jojo was last seen March 2nd, 1981 at a fast food fish restaurant near his home where he did odd jobs to earn a few dollars. His body was found April 19th, 1981 on the banks of the South River. His cause of death was undetermined asphyxiation. March 10th, 1981 is when Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra performed their benefit concert that we mentioned in the last episode Mm -hmm. to help fund the investigation into the Atlanta murders. City Hall was at the time paying $150,000 a month in police overtime. Wow. Yeah. It was suspected that the killer would want to be at the concert, and based on John Douglas's profile, it was suspected that he would have an interest in policing or security. So a plan was formulated by the FBI to advertise for security guards for the concert. The interview process would be used as a cover to screen suspects. However, the plan never came to fruition. Homer Williams was at the concert as a photographer, and according to John Douglas, Wayne Williams was also there. Also in March of 1981, this was a very active month, mm-hmm. the Guardian Angels sent 12 members from New York City to patrol Atlanta and local groups spent weekends searching for bodies. Um, on Wednesday, March, and we've talked about the Guardian Angels before. I remember yeah. the first time I heard that term, I was like, that sounds funny. I think I actually said that sounded racist, racist. <laughs> but uh, I was I w- was just uh, completely uneducated about the Guardian Angels. They were um, like a group that was trying to keep the streets and the subways in New York safe. Right. And so yeah. they came down to Atlanta to um, help. Um, yeah. So on Wednesdays, March 11th, 13 year old Timothy Hill left his backyard where he was playing with his with a niece. She said he left in a taxi where a man put mud on his face. What? Witnesses said that he was seen on the home at the home of pedophile Thomas Uncle Tom Terrell, age 63. And a neighbor of Tom Terrell said that Terrell kept a bucket of some kind of drug that looked like mud and that people would sniff it to get high. I have no idea what this drug might have been. Yeah, I looked i go i did some googling and the only reference i could find was uh slang for heroin but it wasn't actual mud mm-hmm. um so i was thinking maybe there was no actual bucket of mud and the witnesses had heard the term mud and thought it was actual mud 
Um, mm. But if any of you guys out there know of a drug that looks like mud and you stick your face in it and sniff it to get high. Yeah, I'm <laughs> so Let us curious. know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, on March 30th, 1981, the body of Timothy Hill was found in the Chattahoochee River by canoeists. And he was clad only in his underwear. <laughs> the way I wrote it, I thought it was canoeists oh. clad only in their underwear. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you thought they were canoeing in their they underwear. They were which... canoeing in their underwear yeah. and they found the body. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I would have forgiven you if you read it that way. That does sound funny. <laughs> That's how I was going to read it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll try not to, to laugh. All right. It's so... okay. Everybody loves your laugh. I just, me especially. <laughs> so uh, Timothy Hill was found found uh, in the Chattahoochee River, and the cause of death was listed as undetermined asphyxiation. When I say undetermined asphyxiation, that means they know he was asphyxiated, they just don't know how. Right. They don't know if it was manual strangulation or ligature strangulation or what. Could it have been that he drowned? No. Okay. Because if they drown, um, it's different. They would found, find water in their lungs. Mm-hmm. And they would be able to term- determine whether or not they had drowned. Okay. Okay. That's uh, my understanding anyway. Hey, you're the OG of true crime. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> along for but, the ride. <laughs> you know, if the medical examiner sucks, yeah. you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, On March 20th, 1981, Eddie Duncan was 21 years old and he disappeared. He was the first adult victim, but all the victims afterwards were 17 or older. However, they were all described by investigators as being more childlike, either smaller or mentally disabled. The working theory was that the killer was having a difficult time finding child victims because of the press and the curfew. Eddie was last seen either in a game room or getting into a car with a light-skinned black man. The body of Eddie Duncan was found by more canoeists, damn these canoeists, Mm. in the Chattahoochee, a few feet from where Timothy Hill had been found 24 hours earlier. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. The body was again missing all of his clothes but his underwear, and the cause of death was undetermined. Interesting. 20-year-old little Larry Eugene Rogers was 5'1 and lived with his foster father. He was last seen on March 30th, 1981. His body was found in an abandoned building on April 9th. Dog hairs were found on the body, and the cause of death was listed as asphyxiation by strangulation. 23-year-old Michael Cameron Mickey McIntosh disappeared sometime between March 24th and April 1st. He was five foot three. His body was found on the bank of the Chattahoochee on April 20th. The disappearances and murders were really starting to ramp up with five boys and young men murdered in March alone. Oh boy. 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne, who was five foot one, went missing between April 21st and 22nd in 1981. He was last seen heading to the Omni. Jimmy Payne's body was found by a couple who were fishing in the Chattahoochee. His body was missing all his clothes but his underwear, and the cause of death was undetermined asphyxiation. 17-year-old William Billy Star Barrett, who was five foot four, was last seen at the McDaniel Glen Housing Community Center paying a bill for his mother on May 11th, 1981. 
His body was found in a wooded area the next day, and cause of death was asphyxiation by strangulation. Because bodies had begun to be found at rivers, an idea was hatched to stake out bridges. The thought was that the killer would be more likely to dump a body off of a bridge than drive down to the riverside as it would take less time and effort. Hmm. Um, Atlanta uh, has 21 historic bridges in the area. An article I read said that the bridges originated as ferries carrying travelers. And I think that's code for (laughs) slaves across the Chattahoochee (laughs) River. Police staked out. (laughs) So, uh, uh, ferries, uh, prior to, um, bridges being built, uh, they would use ferries to take people across the river. That was the only way to get across the river. So uh, I'm sure there were slaves that, that went across too, but... <laughs> Okay, you but win this round, I think everything goes back to slavery. I can't help it. <laughs> Police, back to slavery. FBI, back to slavery. What else? Fishing it has to do with slavery. Back to slavery. Yeah. Canoes, goddamn Canoes, slavery. Slavery, yeah. Okay, I'll let that one slide. Uh, <laughs> Police staked out bridges for 30 days with recruits sitting under the bridges on either side and FBI chased cars located at the top. The recruits were to radio the chase cars if they saw anything. On May 22nd, 1981, which was to be the last weekend of the 30-day bridge stakeout, at about 2.50 a.m., a police recruit beneath the James Jackson Parkway Bridge heard a loud splash in the Chattahoochee River. The chase car was radioed in a lone vehicle, a 1970 Chevrolet Concourse station wagon, was spotted slowly driving off of the bridge. FBI agents in a chase car pulled the vehicle over and the driver turned out to be Wayne Williams, a 23-year-old self-styled music producer and talent scout. Did anybody check down in the river to see if something <laughs> they could dumped, find the body. if they could find it? <laughs> yeah. I heard... I, um, heard one podcast talk about this case uh a black man who grew up in atlanta saying that there's a lot of beavers and the beavers in the chattahoochee river apparently are very large that it could have been a beaver splashing in the water i this just pinky to me yeah they talked about that on atlanta monster as well did you listen to that episode where they talked about that kind of stuff no, I can't no. remember. I mean, I've listened okay. to it, but I can't recall right. that. Can't remember that part. Mm-mm. So they were talking about that too, and they made the point that these these guys had been sitting out by the river every night for thirty days, so they they knew all the sounds, and it was a a large splash. And they actually tossed something off a bridge that was about the same size and weight as a body mm-hmm. to see what it that. sounded like. Sounded like, and it was it was loud. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying oh, to convince gonna, you, just saying. Oh, we're going to get into it, Beth. Just <laughs> okay. you wait. Okay. Uh, when, when asked why he thought he'd been pulled over, William said cavalierly that he thought it was because of the murders of the kids. When asked why he was out driving at 3 a.m., he claimed to be looking for the home of Cheryl Johnson, who lived in Spanish in the Spanish Terrace Apartments, whom he had a meeting with in the morning to discuss auditioning her for a TV commercial. He said that he didn't want to be late for the meeting, and that's why he was looking for the apartment. His car was searched and police found gloves, a flashlight, and a rope. 
Williams was not detained that night, but Special Agent William McGrath interviewed Williams at his home later on on the morning of May 22nd, about eight hours after he was seen driving off of the bridge. After he was released, Williams apparently cleaned out his car and he was seen by neighbors burning things in a backyard barbecue pit. When Special Agent William McGrath interviewed Williams later that day, Williams claimed that it was his custom to attempt to locate individuals' addresses prior to going there, and that he did this physically, not with maps. And that's what he was doing that morning, trying to find the home of Cheryl Johnson. Williams also told McGrath that when he dialed her number, someone came to the line telling him she ain't here. But no Cheryl Johnson at the Spanish Trace Apartments was ever found, and the phone number that he had for Cheryl Johnson was not in service at the time. But Williams told investigators that he might have got the last digit wrong. McGrath didn't arrest Williams after his interview because he said there were other avenues to be explored. This was a sensitive investigation. We certainly didn't want to be premature in arresting somebody without fully checking out his story. Yeah, I mean, the being out at 3 a.m. thing is weird, right? Yeah. But he was like a disaster photographer and videographer. And he's 23 years old and lives with his parents. Like, you know, I, I... would imagine that you would want to be out of the house late at night as much as you could, right? To get to just be a free 23 year old. I don't know. Possible. Yeah. Uh, In fact, the police at first did not think Williams was their guy. He was well known by many of the police officers because of his photographing and video activities. He was thought of as kind of meek and they didn't think he was capable. But on May 24th, 1981, the body of 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater, who had last been seen on May 21st, was found by some boys who were fishing. He was found on the banks of the Chattahoochee about 100 yards away from where the body of Jimmy Payne had been found a month earlier. A green trilobal fiber was caught in his head hair. Nathaniel Cater lived out of a hotel, and there were reports that he engaged in sex work. Although the medical examiner opined that his body may have actually decomposed for four to five days, not two, he had been seen on the 21st. His body was found nude, and the cause of death was asphyxiation. Although it should be noted that in the summertime, according to one of the producers of the recent HBO series, the river moved at a glacial pace and was about 10 feet deep in the summertime. Wayne Williams then became the number one suspect in the child murders, and the FBI started surveilling him. Eventually, the police obtained a search warrant for his home, where they found carpet fibers, other fibers, and dog hairs consistent with those found on many of the victims' bodies. According to a complaint later filed by Homer and Faye Williams, the search gutted the Williams' home and resulted in over $10,000 in damage to their property. And this was in the 80s. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Larry Peterson, a microanalyst for the Georgia State Crime Lab, attended the search of his home. He later t- said that the green carpet and violet bedspread located in the home, I'll never forget at 10.30 p.m. on June 3rd when I saw it and I realized it matched. The fact was I'd been looking for the material about six months. I was almost getting to the point where I thought I'd never see a matching source. source. I felt sort of numb, sort of disbelief. But like crime scene investigations in the 80s people like traipsing through with their yucky shoes cigarettes everywhere (laughs) like how how meticulous could the crime scene investigation have been that's all i'm saying i don't know (laughs) 
<laughs> but Wayne Williams seemed to enjoy the media attention. He even held a press conference in his home with all of the local and national media. He claimed he never killed anyone, and he handed out his resume and talked about his aspirations to create the next Jackson 5. Oh, it's so maddening watching that press conference. Yeah. It's so <laughs> stupid. What a terrible idea. Yeah. As investigators were digging around, they learned that around the same time that Terry Pugh's body was found, acquaintances of Williams had noted, noticed scratches on his arms, which he claimed happened when he fell into a bush. Terry Pugh was known as a scrapper. He had abrasions on his body, and police suspected that he had fought his killer hard. And on June 21st, 1981, which was Father's Day, and uh, that's kind of shitty, but mm -hmm. anyway, Wayne Williams was arrested and charged with killing Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. According to Lee Patrick Brown, the public safety commissioner, the city did not have any related unsolved cases of missing and murdered juveniles after Williams was arrested. Anyway, so now we're going to get into the trial. <laughs> and the trial came quicker than most criminal trials do. Williams was arrested in June and the trial began in January 1982. Usually a murder trial takes place like 12 days. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 18 months yeah. after a suspect is charged, and sometimes it takes years. Um, you know, you have to gather evidence, credible witnesses, and each side has the opportunity to build up a substantial case. Yeah, and I don't know why it happened so fast. Because um, the... the State of Georgia and Atlanta needed it, this yeah. to get closed. Yeah, so we could make I, I some get money. That. I get that, but usually the defense uh, does things to make it take longer, like mm. files motions and stuff like that. I don't know what they do, but I well, I don't know. I his, don't know. Uh, do we talk about the legal team? Not yet. We're, okay. we're just about to get into it. Okay, okay, here we go. Wayne's defense team consisted of Mary Welcome, a black female attorney who was popular in the community but not experienced in defending murder charges. Tony Axum, who was an experienced trial lawyer, was also on the case initially, but Williams fired him. 
Mary replaced him with Alvin Binder, a white lawyer from Mississippi. Also, the Williams defense team was, uh, or on the Williams defense team was Michael Bayless, a clinical forensic psychologist from Phoenix. He interviewed and tested Wayne Williams for 20 hours in preparation for the trial. Although he refused to repeat what Williams told him, Mr. Bayless said Williams had anxiety, neuroses, excessive compulsive tendencies, and deep feelings about inadequacies, especially sexual. Uh, He said that uh, Mr. Williams was not well-liked as a child and picked on by other children. He also said that Williams had an excessive need for power and control. That was a major reason he chose to associate himself with much younger and more vulnerable people. But he said Williams was, quote, more asexual than homosexual. Mr. Bayless did not end up testifying, and it's my understanding that Williams objected to his testimony because he did not like what the psychologist had to say about his sexuality. So Williams is pulling the strings, right? Yeah, yeah. Fired the one lawyer. Not doing a good job at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think he just fired him because he didn't like him. Yeah. He said he liked Mary Welcome. Yeah. But he didn't like the other one for whatever yeah. reason. But liking a, liking a lawyer doesn't mean much when you are on trial for murder for, murder. for your life. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah. And it may be that he liked her because he could um, manipulate her. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the prosecutors were Joseph Drolat, Jack Mallard, and Louis Slatton. Uh, opening arguments began in the first week of January 1982. It was the first major serial killer case covered by the media in U.S. history. Um, and remember, CNN started around this time. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was juicy stuff, which was remarkable also because no one believed that black people could be serial killers at the time. The jury consisted of eight black people and four white people, nine women and three men. They were sequestered for the duration of the trial. The judge was Clarence Cooper, and he was the first black judge elected to Fulton County bench. And they said he was chosen at random, but I'm not so sure. Yeah. The prosecution's case relied on an abundance of circumstantial evidence. During the two-month trial, prosecutors matched 19 different sources of fibers from Williams' environment to a number of victims. His bedspread, a bathroom rug, gloves, clothes, carpets, dog hairs, as well as the unusual green trilobal carpet fiber. The rare fiber was eventually identified as a yarn that was sold to a Georgia carpet company, West Point Pepperell which used it to make a carpet line called Luxair. Luxair. Ooh, fancy. (laughs) The color of the fibers found on the bodies, including Nathaniel Cater, matched Luxair English olive. Mm. And this was the type of carpet found in William's home. It was very, very 70s. I was just going to say that. Yes, you are right. It was like a green shag. Ooh, I can see it now. Um, Prosecutors sent investigators to find and interview more than 200 women in the county or the country with variations of the name Cheryl Johnson. Checking birth certificates, driver's licenses, and social security numbers. They interviewed every kind of Cheryl Johnson in Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, and throughout the nation. 
Agents also said Williams told them he thought Johnson lived at the Spanish Trace Apartments, but the apartment manager testified she had no record of any resident by that name. Williams also gave police an address for Johnson's apartment, but the manager of the Centerview Terrace Apartments, the only complex at that address, also testified there was no one living there by the name of Cheryl Johnson. Virtually none of Williams' alibi stood up. I just wish he would have just told why he was there. Like the yeah. truth, right? Yeah, And exactly. we still don't know. He changes yeah. this version every time. It's so but frustrating. It's, he still sticks to the Cheryl Johnson story. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I just yeah. wish he would just tell the truth um, yeah. about what he was doing. I don't, you know, I, he's really, um, he's he really doesn't like to talk about his sexuality, right? But right. like, what if it was something simple, like he was going to meet a dude or yeah. going to meet a lady? Like, um, why can't you just say the truth? You know, yeah. I just, this whole thing. Um, well, you know what, why I think he doesn't. <laughs> I do know why you think, but I think it's, I think it's because he's just afraid to be um, outed um, yeah. and is uh, embarrassed. And in the 80s, I mean, I, I I get it, but I just wish that yeah he was allowed to be his full self. Right. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know if he's gay or not, but uh, he, he denies it uh, vehemently. But, um, you know, what if he didn't have to? Yeah, anyway, I'm... I'm really <laughs> starting to get sweaty about the t- the part we're coming to. Uh, at some point, you and I are going to come, come. we're going to have a come to Jesus talk about this case. Uh, so witnesses said they saw Cater and Wayne Williams together, and one witness said they saw the two holding hands. Bobby Toland, who was a white ambulance driver, testified that Wayne had a conversation with him about how much Wayne hated poor black people and eliminating N-words. It turns out that Bobby Toland wasn't even his real name, and he testified because he wanted the reward money. It's also reported that Bobby was a member of the Klan. Klan with a K. But the (laughs) idea that Wayne and his anti-black sentiments was part of this case against 
against him. It's a very real thing. Anti-blackness in black communities, brown communities, Asian communities, and white ones. Um, Anyway. During the nine-week trial, Williams was linked to 10 of the other murder cases through the same traces of fiber and dog hairs found on Cater and Payne, showing that showing what prosecutors said was Williams, quote, pattern and bent of mind. Some people argue that the judge shouldn't have allowed that. And I'm one of those people because those 10 crimes had not been tried and were not being tried. But Georgia law allowed for it. It's very strange. Um, yeah. The 10 cases that were linked through hair and fiber evidence were Alfred Evans, Eric Middlebrooks, Charles Stevens, Luby Jeter, Terry Pugh, Patrick Baltasar, Joseph Jojo Bell, Larry Ro- Rogers, William Barrett, and 28-year-old John Harold Porter, who actually never officially made the list and who had been found stabbed to death in a vacant lot on April 12, 1981. Microanalyst Larry Peterson, a fiber expert from the Georgia State Crime Lab, testified that fibers found in Wayne Williams' house and car matched six different types of fibers recovered from the body of Jimmy Ray Payne and five different types of fibers taken from the body of Nathaniel Cater. Quote, in my opinion, it is highly unlikely that any environment other than that present in Wayne Williams' house and car could have resulted in the combination of fibers and hairs I found on Mr. Cater and Mr. Payne, Peterson said. Gordon Miller, the assistant prosecutor in charge of presenting the fiber evidence in what he called, quote, probably the greatest fibers case in history, end quote, said that the initial carpet fibers on the bodies indicated that, quote, we're dealing with a very unusual fiber, end quote. There are problems with the science and the crime lab itself, including contamination and cover-ups. This came out in the 90s, and a former employee of the FBI crime lab said that 26 of 28 cases from that time were re-examined and convictions were thrown out. But the Atlanta murders case was not one of those cases. Proclaiming his innocence, Williams took the stand in his own defense against his attorney's advice. This is not typically done in criminal defense cases because while the defendant does get an opportunity to tell his or her story and receive softball questions from his counsel, he also has to take whatever the prosecutor throws at him and most attorneys advise their clients not to do it. FBI profiler John Douglas, a.k.a. Beth's Bay, (laughs) advised the prosecutors and formed a strategy for questioning him. Keep him on the stand as long as possible and rile him up by focusing on his failures in life. And on the second day of questioning, William suddenly grew angry, calling the questioning prosecutor a fool and FBI agents goons. You want the real Wayne Williams, he said. You got him right here. The prosecution's final witness was Sharon Blakely, a friend of Williams. She said that when she first met Williams, she thought he knew a considerable amount about the music business, which she had entered in the summer of 1980. Quote, it took me a month or two to find out Wayne didn't know nothing, she said. Ooh, uh, she said he had often visited the jewelry shop she owned with her husband and that she had noticed Williams once stalking a black youth who worked at the grocery store next door. She said Williams had insisted on trying to get that young man to record a song, even though he kept saying that he could not sing. She also said that Mr. Williams once explained to her how he could apply pressure to a specific point on a person's neck that would knock them out. Asked by the prosecution if Williams had expressed hatred towards other blacks. Ms. Blakely said, just the poor kids. Mm. She also said that Williams told her that he had thrown garbage from the bridge. 
Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Blakely also testified that she told Will- Mr. Williams, the game has got to come to an end sometime, Wayne. Before you get hurt, will you confess? She said he replied, I'm not going to answer that. She then asked him again, quote, if they get enough evidence on you, will you confess before you get hurt? End quote. Yes, she said he answered. She admitted on the stand through tears that she believed that he did it. On February 27th, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Williams guilty and convicted him of two counts of murder. After Williams' conviction, authorities shuttered the police task force. The city officially connected him to 22 more murders and closed those investigations. Interesting. The thing about the trial is that the prosecution spent $1.7 million on pursuing the case against Williams, and Wayne Williams paid his lawyers about $5,000. Wow. Uh, and Yeah. Uh, and Camille Bell told reporters that she wasn't satisfied calling Williams the 30th victim of the Atlanta slayings. Willie Mae Mathis, mother of Jeffrey Mathis, uh, she said Wayne was a scapegoat. They had to get somebody to put in jail because the city was like a keg of dynamite. Where are they now? Wayne Williams, now 62, is currently serving out his life sentences at Georgia's Hancock State Prison, where he continues to maintain his innocence. He has not taken advantage of any of the programs in prison, but he is back to his talent scouting ways. Also, it's known that pedophiles and child killers are at the bottom of the totem pole in the prison hierarchy, but Williams has managed to move about the general population mostly without incident. And uh, I I think that's because he's been working in the library and helping people with their cases and making friends with people, so he's been able to um, stay out of trouble. Oh, I read that he was involved in one fight. And that was oh it. okay, um, yeah. I mean, he's been in there for a long time, so yeah. I'm sure there's been at least one fight, <laughs> at least one. <laughs> but uh, uh, usually, you know, they will get killed. <laughs> you right. know, people will seek them out to to uh, kill them. Right, and to hear him tell it, he was like, you know, if these inmates believed I was, I did those things, I would be dead. So yeah, yeah, he's probably um, got them convinced that he's not guilty. <laughs> The Atlanta child murders (laughs) still haunt the city. People still question whether Williams was responsible for any of the murders, and they wonder if the guilty parties have gone unpunished. But the case was closed, and the city got to continue growing economically. It was all about the Benjamins, like Beth said in the last episode. By the way, Ben Franklin is on the $100 bill, but he too owns slaves, Hmm. even though he changed his position on the subject later in life. Well, that's good, anyway. I guess. <laughs> in 2007, some of the dog hairs found on the body of Patrick Baltazar were sent to a genetics lab to be DNA tested. The report said the Williams dog Sheba had the same DNA sequence, a DNA chain found in only one out of 100 dogs. In 2010, two human scalp hairs that had also been found on the body of Patrick Baltazar were also DNA tested. The lab report found that the hairs had the same type of DNA sequence as did Wayne Williams' hair. It's not 100% because the hairs were incomplete and the type of testing called mitochondrial DNA can only trace the maternal line. But according to FBI scientist Harold Dedman, it excludes 98% or so of the people in the world. 
Ooh, okay. In uh, 2019, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who was nine, nine years old at the time of the crimes, ordered the police department to reopen its investigation into the Atlanta murders. Mayor Bottoms and former Atlanta police chief Erica Shields, uh, she resigned after that police shooting of Rayshard Brooks in the back of the Wendy's parking lot, said that the purpose of reopening the investigations and re- retesting the evidence is not to vindicate Wayne Williams, but instead to bring justice and peace to the families of the victims. Quote, this is about being able to look these families in the eye and say, we did everything we could possibly do to bring closure to your case. Shields told the New York Times, we are going to make some headway, but I'm not sure how much. And, you know, this evidence is old. I don't know how much uh, DNA they can get. I don't know what they can do, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I was I was happy to hear when it when it happened i was excited right um because uh derek flowers curtis flowers yeah i mean um that podcast series came out uh and i think the journalism and the work uh done in that case really helped um the prosecutor like leave him alone right yeah yeah he's getting a lot of attention so well yeah i mean the that this this was done after the atlanta murders uh or atlanta monster podcast series came right and then Um, uh, there was a couple of tv series the hbo series and mm -hmm. the id series so yeah it's getting more attention now yeah so all good stuff but remember earlier in 2020 remember Remember those days? Remember the before times? Uh, There was a memorial depicting portraits of the missing and murdered Atlanta victims was unveiled at the mayor's gallery at City Hall. And it remains that that there are 28 cases unsolved and 28 families who more than 40 years later still don't have closure. Yeah. John Douglas has said that he never thought that Wayne Williams did all of the cases. Mm. He said the two girls, Angela Lanier and Latanya Wilson, and some of the other ones definitely did not fit. Royal Hazelwood, another FBI profiler, and Douglas thought that about 10 of them were behaviorally linked. Um, yeah, I could see that. Um, I agree with that. Uh, Monica Kaufman Pearson, a beloved longtime Atlanta news anchor interviewed for both the podcast and Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, may be right when she tells the camera, this is one of those mysteries that will remain a mystery because we blew it from the beginning. There were all these questions and we never got answers. Yeah. Agree. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1991, Williams and his legal team, which included Alan Dershowitz, one of the lawyers for O.J. Simpson, filed a habeas corpus appeal, technically demanding that Williams' imprisonment be justified in court. His attorneys argued that there was evidence of a link between the series of murders and the Ku Klux Klan, which was kept secret, even from the defense, for fear that it would provoke racial unrest. Uh, It was revealed at the 1991 proceedings that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation had opened an undercover investigation into Charles Sanders, who was allegedly part of a Klan offshoot called the National States Rights Party. When black people hear states' rights, it's it's very uh, disconcerting. Yeah. Uh, short, they call it NSRP. Um, the NSRP, yeah. I'm like, MSRP, get a car. Uh, <laughs> the family was under surveillance during the investigation. But four children died while they were surveilled, and the Sanders brothers took polygraph tests, which they passed. 
There were tapes of Charles saying that he was glad the murders happened and that he had wiped out generations of N-words. Charles also told Whitaker that Luby Jeter bumped into Charles's truck and Charles threatened to kill the boy. There were recordings of the Sanders brothers saying they would go out and look for other black children to kill. But the tapes were destroyed after Wayne Williams was arrested and that part of the investigation was not pursued. Also, the body of Darren Glass has never been found to this day. So there are a lot of theories surrounding this case. Yep. And we're just going to list them for you. Just a a few. Just a few. There's more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So keep in mind that this was the New South, little more than 10 years after Martin Luther King was assassinated. The city was supposed to be too busy to hate, and there was a lot of push to continue the city's economic growth. And whispers of a child murderer would hinder that. So authorities felt that they had to keep it quiet as long as they could. And once the murders made national news, the case needed to be closed quickly one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Almost from the start, there was belief that Wayne Williams had not killed all the victims, if any at all. People had a hard time believing that a black man would do this or or that it was possible for a black man to be a serial killer. Rumors flew about political corruption and cover-ups, child prostitution rings, and the Ku Klux Klan. There was a theory that the KKK was involved in the killings and that the KKK was murdering the children in order to prevent black people from rising up in the city and to cut off the bloodlines or future generations of more black people. But early on, the kids were being taken in broad daylight without people noticing. So there was another theory that the Klan enlisted or paid black people in the neighborhoods to bring the black children to the KKK uh, for them to torture and murder. The KKK theory was supported by Sanders' involvement and the fact that he was suspected at one point there were recorded recordings capturing his motives, but they were destroyed and Williams' defense team was never told about this line of questioning. Supposedly, Sanders was angry when Luby Jeter again hit his truck with uh, his go-kart and he was going to strangle Jeter. He added that he would kill more black kids, including little girls. Authorities said they had no evidence for Sanders and dismissed the case. But remember, historically in Atlanta, there were members of law enforcement who were in the KKK and black people had difficulty trusting what the police told them. The HBO series on the case played an interview with Sanders, who said he owned a Siberian husky whose hairs more closely resembled those of the dog hairs found on one of the victims. Mm. Another theory that branches off of the KKK theory is that the KKK ran a pedophile ring. In addition to the murders, there was an idea that the children were being sold into sex trafficking. Another part of the theory was that Atlanta's black elites were involved in a pedophile sex trafficking ring. That's crazy. I know. Right? (laughs) (laughs) There was another theory that Thomas, quote unquote, Uncle Tom Terrell was responsible for some of the murders and that he was involved in a pedophile ring. In some TV interviews, he admitted that some of the boys had been at his house and witnesses said that there was some sex trafficking going on. They actually called his home Uncle Tom's Cabin after the Harriet Beecher Stowe book. Mm. Uh, There was a theory popularized by comedian and activist Dick Gregory, uh, the late Dick Gregory, who is hilarious. And some of his stuff he says was, you know, brilliant, stands up to this day. But like your very funny uncle, sometimes they say some shit that you just have to be like, that's just old Uncle Dick. Pay him no mind. <laughs> a 
According to this theory, the CDC was involved in a plot to harvest the sexual organs of the missing and murdered children. Dick Gregory met with Venus Taylor, the mother of Angel Lanier, and according to Venus, they met with a scientist to explain that a protein called interferons was being retrieved from prepubescent bodies. She said she saw photos of puncture marks next to genitals of one of uh. the victims. Interferons are a group of soluble glycoproteins that are produced and released from cells in response to virus infection and other stimuli. Most recently, they are being used to help develop COVID-19 treatments. Then there's the Jamie Brooks theory, which suggests that it was Jamie Brooks who murdered Clifford Jones and possibly others. We mentioned in the last episode how a witness who gave an account to police that uh, Jamie Brooks raped and murdered Clifford Jones um, and his account was disregarded because of his perceived lack of intelligence. Clifford Jones's brother also believes that Jamie Brooks killed Clifford. But although the evidence corroborates the witness account that Clifford Jones was strangled with a ligature, there was no evidence of sexual assault. Another theory involves the CIA. Wayne Williams claimed that he was also recruited in the CIA for secret <laughs> missions in the junior officers program. I don't think that's a real program. He said he said he went on two missions in Africa where he saw women and children uh, destroyed. And he said he wasn't sure if the people were wiped out with a chemical weapon or HIV. Williams told his friends he came back and that he no longer wanted to be a part of the CIA. Now, it's no secret that the CIA is responsible for some really fucked up shit, i.e. torture. Yeah. Where are the tapes, Gina? You know, the <laughs> the... <laughs> The lady who's in charge and there's supposedly tapes of them torturing people, uh, but they like nobody knows where they are. Anyway, yeah. uh, where are the tapes, Gina? But it seems like a stretch. Wayne claims the CIA was upset that he left the program and he, that he would regret it. Uh, he alleged that the CIA framed him for the murders to get back at him. Yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah. That one is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another theory is that maybe it was another serial killer. Um, and serial killer Edward Edwards was caught in Atlanta shortly after Wayne Williams was arrested. He supposedly had friends in the Atlanta Police Department and was a GBI informant. Um, the case of Edward Edwards is uh, really interesting um, because he's been accused of the Atlanta killings and also the Zodiac murders in California, John Bonet Ramsey's death, Whoa. the boys killed in Memphis for which the West Memphis Three were wrongly convicted, and the murder of Teresa Hallback, the woman whose death was featured in the Netflix series Making a Murderer. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. He's like wow. the catch-all serial killer. Wow. So so if you don't know who the serial killer is, it's got to be Edward Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What now, a guy. It is true that he was a con man, a horrible person and a murderer, but there's no evidence linking him to the Atlanta child murders and his M.O. was completely different. Have you heard of Edward Edwards before? I have. Yeah. Oh, OK. I ha I this is news to me. He sounds fascinating. <laughs> Too bad yeah, we there's a, there's a podcast about him. I'll have to find it for you. It was pretty interesting. Oh, OK. Yes, please send it on down. I will. <laughs> I'm all ears. Uh, <laughs> finally, there's also a theory that uh, wealth and money was protecting the serial killer. Angel Lanier's mom said that she was told that the person who killed her child confessed 
to them. Uh, this is the person talking to her. It's confessed to somebody, but they couldn't tell her who it was because that person was mentally ill and was from the, one of the wealthiest families in the city of Atlanta. That kind of reminds me of uh, Jack the Ripper, like the theories on Jack the Ripper. Oh, tell me more. One of the theories is that he was mentally ill and part of the royal family. <gasps> what? Yeah. I never this before <laughs> that case suddenly yep. got more interesting <laughs> yeah there's a lot of uh, crazy theories with that one as well <gasps> lots of different suspects yeah. oh my gosh isn't it crazy um i was just i was thinking as we were reading through this that this case feels like a jack the ripper kind of um as far as the theory surrounding it right, right? yeah like it does. jack like it kind of mirrors jack the ripper i don't know i you guys let me know what you think. Nobody knows uh, who it who it was, and and they have all these different theories, and yeah, I agree. It, it is like that. So now we're going to get into what we think made uh, William snap and our takeaways. So we have conducted exhaustive oh, research yeah, I'm so glad this is on over. this case. <laughs> Woo! It feels like <clears throat> as soon as we hit stop the recording, like I'm going to sleep so soundly. <laughs> um, and I found that the race of whoever was telling the story, like the race of whatever source w I, I was looking at sort of dictated whether or not they thought Wayne was guilty. If it was a white person who was telling the story, they thought he was guilty. And if it was a BIPOC person, they seemed to believe that Wayne was innocent. I personally, I do not know if Wayne killed anyone. Uh, he was a lot of things, but I don't think he was a killer. I think he was arrogant and stupid as all hell for thinking he could <laughs> outsmart the entire American media, legal and justice system by himself. Uh, I think authorities really underestimated the Klan's potential involvement in the case. I know people i.e. Beth might disagree uh, I think that <laughs> pinning this on Wayne solved all the city's problems there are reports of problems with the FBI crime lab that came out in the HBO docuseries the country is still grappling with the idea of a black person being a human being we're seeing that on the news in 2020 uh, and James Baldwin wrote a book about the case called the evidence of things not seen and uh, he said that he didn't think the city of Atlanta closed the case that the state of Georgia did. And in the eyes of the state of Georgia and this country, these are James Baldwin words, <laughs> a free nigger is a bad nigger. Uh, and Wayne just paraded around town, speaking as much as he wants, saying as much as he wanted, trying to control the narrative. Um, and Wayne Williams was described as Baldwin as uh, by Baldwin as indolent, which is being arrogant to a fault. And if there was a stronger word and I was as smart as Baldwin, I would have used it. Uh, that <laughs> was so irritating to watch. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think to Baldwin's point, especially for white people. Um, and I think that not all 30 cases can be attributed to one person with one MO. That's what I got. What do you got, Beth? Okay. Burst my bubble. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't like Wayne Williams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I find, I find him hinky. Mm -hmm. Um, his ability and willingness to lie bothers me a lot, a lot, like the, all the CIA stuff and the, 
flying fighter jet planes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and li- listening to him talk drives me nuts. Like on the Atlanta monster series, he would just talk and talk and talk and yeah. not let anybody get a word in edgewise. He mm-hmm. was just like, he was just talking to talk. He didn't care if anybody was listening or not. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of reminds me of how my brother talks, just a lot of bravado and bullshit. Mm. And uh, Wayne Williams talks and talks about how he's going to show you all this evidence, but then he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it's like when Trump says, believe me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> no, it's going to be huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks smug which I personally think is the result of something he does called duping delight. It's a micro expression, just a little upturn. Yeah. It's a little upturn at the corner of his mouth that shows a sense of enjoyment out of controlling and deceiving other people. And I didn't see anybody else talk about this. So it's, it's just my personal opinion. I think that's why he looks smug. Ooh, okay. Okay. I also hate how he talks about himself in the third person. He's like, Wayne Williams this, Wayne Williams that. That is very annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he's a narcissist. And, uh, you know, just to reiterate, I don't like Wayne Williams. But just because I don't like him doesn't mean he's a murderer. Go ahead. I do think his behaviors tend to show that it's possible he has a personality disorder. Okay, go off, Beth. (laughs) All right. In any case, um, with this case, there are a few things that I can't get past. Like we were talking about earlier, his alibi on the night he was pulled over. Mm -hmm. I think it's a total fabrication. It just does not ring true in any way. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking for somebody's house at 3 a.m. for a morning meeting, that's just silly. And Cheryl Johnson didn't exist and her phone number was bogus. Her address was bogus. Um, I'd have been more willing to believe a story about him being unable to sleep and he was just driving around. Why didn't he go with that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he also told several different stories. We talked about this as as well, that he, we didn't get into all of the stories, but he said he stopped on the bridge. He said he didn't stop on the bridge. He said he didn't throw anything off the bridge. He said he threw some garbage off the bridge. And if you're telling the truth, your story doesn't change all the time. Yeah. Um, then uh, also people reported seeing Wayne and Homer also burning things in a barbecue pit that morning and the car got cleaned out, mm-hmm. which is also hinky. Mm-hmm. And another point that someone made, I don't, I don't remember who it was, but the point was that Williams worked as a talent scout for something like four or five years, but he had no group or finished recorded product uh, after interviewing and auditioning hundreds and uh, probably thousands of kids. So Where's that product? <laughs> well, I mean, the Jackson Five didn't happen overnight, right? No, but <laughs> where where was he? Didn't have anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. And then the uh, the fiber ev- evidence to me was overwhelming. Ooh, um, okay. And not not just the trilobal green fiber of the carpet found in Williams' house, but the combination of different fibers, each one found on different victims and in Williams' home and car. And there was a chart that Larry Peterson, the GBI analyst, showed in the HBO series. It showed uh, the victims and the different fibers found on each one and their connections. And I thought it was pretty damning. Mm -hmm. He also said that he had never seen that fiber, the green 
trilobal fiber before or since. Hmm. And there was an issue with the hair evidence and the HBO series portrayed that it applied to the fiber evidence as well. But my understanding is that it actually didn't. Oh, And then there was the later DNA tests on the dog hairs and the head hairs. Well, not 100% of slime dunk um, are also pretty damning, I thought. Mm. Okay. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Continue. Go on, Beth. <laughs> so as you know, I have a big respect for John Douglas. Respect? You've been a whole yeah. big boner. I know. <laughs>
I have a John Douglas pillow. So. <laughs> I'm fascinated by criminal profiling and um, Douglas's profile fit Wayne Williams to a T. He also advised the prosecutors on how to deal with Williams at the trial. And we didn't get into this in the story, but during the trial, John Douglas also told prosecutors that Williams was about to feign illness because he felt like he was losing the trial. And and you know what? He did. Mm. <laughs> he got sick Uh-oh. and they took him to the hospital and he wasn't really sick so <laughs> oh <laughs> douglas was also the one who advised prosecutors to keep williams on the stand for as long as possible and keep harping on his failures in order to break him which worked so i don't know i feel like john douglas had his number <laughs> <sighs> okay go on <laughs> Now, I didn't I didn't take much stock in the eyewitness testimony. Um, We've talked about that before, how unreliable it can be, especially when the witnesses are strangers. Mm -hmm. And the one guy, Bobby Toland or whatever the fuck his real name was, he was trash. Human dumpster. Yeah. But the one that did have an impact on me was Sharon Blakely, who actually knew Wayne Williams. And my understanding was that she actually liked him and was devastated by the realization that she thought he was guilty. Mm. And then the Jamie Brooks theory doesn't hold up to me just because um, he was the guy who witnesses said that they saw him kill Clifford Jones in a laundromat. And they said that uh, he was sodomized, Um, but his body showed no signs of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So not to say it's impossible for Jamie Brooks to have killed any of the children because he was a pedophile and he had been arrested um, for I think raping Uh, a child. Yes. Yes. So it's not impossible that he would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But since there was no evidence of sexual assault, um, it can't have happened the way that the witnesses said or the the one witness said. Um, And Mm. I do think there was something going on at Thomas Terrell's house, Uncle Mm. Tom's cabin. Uh Um, And that definitely should have been looked into further because. um, For sure. Yeah, there was something bad going on over there. As far as the KKK is concerned, I think prior to doing this podcast, I would have thought the idea was ridiculous. Mm. Um, I didn't understand how entrenched the KKK was in establishments like the Atlanta police force Mm -hmm. or how or why black people distrust the police. Mm. Um, But now I get it. Um, I get that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think it's ridiculous, and I do think it's suspicious how the tapes of the Sanders brothers w- was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Why Why did they do that? That's hinky as hell. Oh, yes. Yeah. But um, John Douglas did make the point that the Klan likes to make a show of their murders. Like, they lynch black people and leave the bodies out. Um, you know, they don't hide them in woods or rivers because they want black people to know for sure that they're behind it. Because the point is terrorism. Well, yes, but um, that those days were over at that point, right? The Klan was sort of had gone underground. Underground, yeah. And um, so it's possible. And I do think that either way, the Klan is happy to have people think that they did it. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, And I don't, as we discussed, I don't believe that Williams, or no, not as we discussed. Never mind. Scratch that. (laughs) Okay. Um, We didn't talk about this. Okay. I don't believe that Williams killed all of the victims. Uh, Definitely not. We have talked about this. We talked about this by the water cooler. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then we decided to start Fruit Loops. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
but not in the podcast. Right. Okay. <laughs> so um, the ones that were similar, probably um, maybe 10 or 12. Okay. Um, I don't know for sure because I don't, I don't know all the evidence, but I think he did kill some of them. Mm. Um, and no, all the murders of children did not end after Williams was arrested. But uh, remember on average, Atlanta had about 10 child murders a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that did end were the ones that had a pattern, the ones that were asphyxiated and left in the woods or in the river and had the same fiber evidence on them. Um, the ones who were not sexually assaulted, those did end. And those are the ones that I think Williams is probably guilty of. Mm, okay. Go off, Beth. <laughs> Go God, on. I'm taking a long yeah, time. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know what his motive was, but uh, per John Douglas, he thought Williams felt like a failure because of all of his failed business ventures and uh, killing the boys and men made him feel powerful and successful. Mm. I don't know if there was a sexual motive or not. Um, I think John Douglas said that he thought there was that um, you don't have to actually have rape somebody or have sex with somebody for there to be a sexual motive. Mm -hmm. Um, But then that also that other uh, psychologist said that he thought Williams was asexual. So, I mean, if there's a serial killer who's asexual, I don't know what that looks like. So, yeah. Interesting. The one thing that bothers me is that he went from killing boys to killing men, which seems really unusual. You don't usually see that. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus, Wayne Williams is small. He's like five yeah. foot six. Yeah, but some of those men were really small, like five foot one. Mm-hmm. Um, they were in the one guy. Um, I can't remember what his name was. I'm sorry. Mm, but um, I think it was the one that was five foot one. He looked like a little boy. He really mm. did. Mm. Um, every time I look at his picture, I'm, it makes me sad. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, anyway, people surmise that he started killing men because of the curfew and that may be, and the men that were murdered were said to be childlike in some way or another, either in size or in mental deficiencies. But also, um, maybe if there wasn't a sexual motive, he was working up to men and boys were easier. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Okay. All right, OJ, true crime. <laughs> All of that said, I don't think Wayne Williams got a fair trial. Amen. I don't understand how they were able to bring in evidence from the other cases that hadn't even been tried. Apparently, it's okay with Georgia Law to do that. Uh, it's called prior bad acts or something like that, but I don't, I don't understand why that's allowed. It yeah. doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Also, the police treated his parents abominably mm-hmm. when they tore up their house. Mm-hmm. I think that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that they should have closed the books on all of the murders after Williams was found guilty because it's my opinion that there were definitely other killers, um, at least one other killer, probably multiple killers, and they all got away with murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this case, case seems to me like a perfect storm of crap. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. There was the inexperienced police force. Um, Atlanta was an up and coming economic powerhouse. And there were was the politics and the mayor not wanting national attention on the cases. There was racism and classism and a downplay of the victim's worth. Okay, Beth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Atlanta's history with the KKK, mistrust by black people of the police and the FBI, 
black people not wanting to believe that a black man could do this to their children. And because of all of that and other things, too, I don't think we'll ever know exactly what happened in Atlanta. There will always be doubt and none of the evidence matters if you don't trust the source of that evidence. Mm -hmm. It's all a matter of trust and why we need to do more as a society to gain the trust of our black and brown communities. Ooh, that's why she's my favorite white lady, everybody. (laughs) 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 Oh, me, oh my. Sorry if that went on too long. (laughs) No, it was fantastic. Wow, Beth. Oh my God. That is why I'm so glad to be doing this show with you. I just like, you know, in the movie Glory, when Denzel has that one tear going down his face, I just, I just my glory tear oh just came glory from my tear. eye. That was I love glorious. that. <laughs> Uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So I'm changing it up a little bit. If you hate 2020 and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Listen, y'all, I got nothing this <laughs> week the news of rbg's passing has us all scared and sad and just sort of thinking like what now 2020 what else you got what's you know what's coming down the pike i i can't imagine uh so i just want to take this time to say take care of yourselves uh drink your water drink tea take bubble baths take naps take all the naps uh wear your masks and wash your hands frequently Uh, make sure you are registered to vote and be radically kind to yourselves and kind to each other Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, laughter is the best medicine. So try to find something that makes you laugh. Mm, Yes. Uh, So that's that. Now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by othered or marginalized folks or any true crime goodies. So speaking of, uh, there's this podcast I love called There Are No Girls on the Internet. It's a podcast highlighting marginalized voices, BIPOC folks, trans people and femmes with disabilities and LGBTQ folks who are powerhouses in their own right on the Internet. Spoiler alert, they are there, right? There are girls on the Internet. (laughs) And have always been there, but their stories are overlooked. Yeah, not surprised. I know, right? (laughs) Uh, Bridget Todd brings them to light and is building monuments for them in the forms of podcasts. What do you got? That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So I've shouted it out before, but I'm going to suggest watching Mindhunter season two again after listening to our Atlanta child murders episodes. Um, It's so well done. Mm -hmm. And I, I watched it again while preparing for this series. So did I. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they included a lot of details that I didn't pick up on the first time around, mm-hmm. even including little details like the renovation of the airport. Mm-hmm. 
um, just remember that it's based on the true story, but it's fiction. Like uh, Holden Ford is based on John Douglas and Bill Tench is based on the FBI agent Robert Ressler, but their personal stories are completely fabricated. Dang and it. some of the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the scenes are also fabricated. Like there's a scene where Holden is trying to put up some crosses for memorials, but that actually never happened. Mm. It was an idea that John Douglas had, but it was never implemented. Mm. But I think what the story gets right is the feelings of the community and the people involved in the investigation and of the frustration and the disappointment in the outcome. Yeah. So, yeah. It Definitely. was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, that's it for today. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron. Patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts 
or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. <laughs>